Take Bullseye and more with you with the NPR One app. NPR One finds you the best from public radio and beyond. Election essentials, local stories, and your favorite podcasts. NPR One's ready to make driving, working, or cleaning the house better. Find NPR One on your app store. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. What makes somebody go into stand-up comedy? Are they chasing the high of hearing a room full of laughter? Patton Oswalt says, yeah, but that's only part of it. A heroin addict does not set up the possibility of failure. They are chasing the high. But a, a gambler, and I think to a much bigger extent a comedian, yes, we're chasing the high, but the high has no meaning unless we also chase the possibility of a crashing disastrous low. That is the setup of the joke. I'm setting this up, and then when I toss that punchline, it might not work, and that's part of the thrill. So we get addicted to both of those. It is a succulent, all of your senses are amped up to 11 moment of life when you feel a room turn against you or you use the wrong foot. All that is just as memorable as when you kill. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk to Patton about the years he spent basically completely indoors. He was in a TV writer's room all day. He went to the movies and then the stand-up stage all night. Then he'd wake up and do it all again. Replacing life with art, whether it's art you make or art you pursue, makes you less of a person and can end up causing a lot of stress and depression and cause your personality to flicker a little bit. Patton's latest comedy special, Talking for Clapping, got the Emmy for Outstanding Writing on a Variety special this past September. Later, I'll sit down with Randall Park and Ninochka Khan, the star and showrunner of Fresh Off the Boat. The show is inspired by Eddie Huang's memoir about growing up in his Taiwanese-American family. Ninochka says her experience as a first-generation American is a key part of the show's very specific humor. It's like the thing that makes you different, that you embrace as an adult, is the exact thing that you don't want to define you when you're a teenager. And that's the stuff that you write about as a writer. You know, you write about those differences and you write about, you know, having your friends come over and your parents singing happy birthday in Farsi. At the time, you're mortified. You know, <laughs> you just want it to be quote unquote normal. Plus, I'll tell you about the disintegration of Sly and the Family Stone, and the perfect album they made along the way. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If Patton's name isn't familiar to you as a stand-up, you might know him as one of the stars of King of Queens, as the lead from Pixar's Ratatouille, or from his recurring roles on Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Veep. He's since gone on to win an Emmy this past September for his Netflix comedy special, Talking for Clapping. I talked with him last year about his memoir, Silver Screen Fiend, learning about life from an addiction to film. Here's a bit from his most recent special. And I, look, I love San Francisco. I love coming back. Uh, I miss it horribly. Um, a couple things still that um, where I, especially when I was uh, in the neighborhood I was living in, uh, I spent a lot of my, uh, once I woke up at 3 p.m., I would go to a coffee shop. And a lot of the, San Francisco is the capital of the snappy answer for the completely reasonable question. Like I would, 
go into this coffee shop and are like, hey, could I get a cup of coffee? Well, it is a coffee shop. Hey, f you, give me, look, I'm, I'm, I'm on your side. I'm sorry the band isn't working out and you gotta work here. Pat Oswalt's a comedian. He's also an obsessive. As a kid, he was obsessed with comedy, memorizing Steve Martin and Monty Python records, committing to memory the heckler comebacks on Rodney Dangerfield albums, and for that matter, the heckler's drunken insults, too. When he moved to L.A. to become a comedian in the 90s, he started a new obsession. Every night, when he came home from his day job writing sketches for Mad TV, he'd head to the movie theater. He watched classic movies, cult movies, art movies, schlocky new releases. He told himself he was preparing to become a director like Quentin Tarantino. Really, he was cutting himself off from the world. His memoir, Silver Screen Fiend, is about getting sucked into that alternate world and how he climbed his way back out. Patton Oswalt, great to have you back on the show. It's yeah. been too long. It's been way too long. Were you a big movie fan when you were a kid? Yeah, I love movies, not not on, on an, the obsessive level that I hit uh, during the years of this book. But, yeah, I would always watch stuff on on television, um, you know, Saturday afternoons. There was a – every Saturday afternoon on WDCA Channel 20, first it was an Abbott and Costello film, and then there was a horror movie um, in the afternoon. So my Saturday afternoons, when it could have been spent running around, I guess this is a bit of a – uh, an omen to what was, was to come. I was in watching these movies. But I was lucky in that, you know, I, I had the three network TV channels and the one local channel and no real video stores. And even when, when I was in my teens and we had video stores, uh, there was nothing close to us. We were in the remote, remote suburbs. You don't really hear a lot of people say, I was lucky that I grew up in a place with no video stores. Well, I'm just saying that if it, it may have, you know, I actually did some genuine living throughout high school and college because I didn't have as much access to rep theaters, video stores. I couldn't really jam. I can only jam the needle in so far. You know, I had to go seek out other ways to fight my boredom. But once I got to L.A., L.A. is, you know, L.A. and New York are the two, uh, you know, rep theater capitals of the world, basically. You can watch movies 24-7 if you want to. And for a while, I wanted to. That's all I wanted to do. So... The thing about Los Angeles, or at least as I experienced Los Angeles when I moved here, um, is that, you know, there is a lot of opportunity going on around you, but it is also a much more disconnected place. And yeah. it seems like a big part of you moving to L.A. was sort of flopping around until you plugged into this alternative Largo scene, yeah. just trying to find a way to be you know, to live as part of the world. Yeah, because for a lot of the times I was down here, I was either in my office at Mad TV writing, um, and then I was in a movie theater somewhere, and it took a couple of months. The first few months I was in um, L.A., I didn't really go on stage. I was a little, you know, still trying to find my footing, and I, I didn't know if I wanted to do sets at the Comedy Store or the Laugh Factory. I'd been in those rooms, and they didn't vibe very well with me. So I didn't really know what I was going to do, and then, but luckily, stuff like Beth Lapidus's Uncabaret came along, and uh, and then the Largo, and and so that whole I I kind of got a world there that I could thrive in as a comedian. How do you think you ended up uh, in movie theaters? 
Uh, when I say in movie theaters, I'm talking about not in movie theaters once a week on Friday or Saturday night, but in movie theaters five and six times a week when previously you had dedicated your entire life to being in stand-up clubs yeah. five or six nights a week. Because I think L.A. is so vast and you are so cut off and you are sealed in your car and you're driving around and, and then you got to get to a neighborhood and you don't really know. And everyone's kind of – it doesn't have the same vibe as a city like – San Francisco, everyone here is, you know, the, the 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 old saying is people say, hey, come visit me in L.A., and then you come visit them, and they're just too busy because, you know, people are here to work. It, this is not a, this isn't a good hang town, you know? Um, so uh, I needed a, I needed to create a hang for myself and a, um, a darkened movie theater where there's light and action and dialogue and stuff up on the screen and stuff to engage you. Um, that's a hang, you know, that, that was, that became my hang. So for a while, I kind of replaced it with, I replaced the people in my life with movies. And also because I was way too much on the make when I first came here. I was very insecure. I was very worried about my career and my status and how I was going to do. So, you know, it, it, it wasn't very pleasant for me to interact with people sometimes. How did the amount of time that you were spending on the stand-up stage change when you started going to the movies all the time? At first, it, it went away. For a couple of months, I didn't go on stage anymore uh, because I was trying to get my footing. And then it, I ended up balancing out really nicely. I would see a movie and then go right to a stand-up show somewhere because the movies would really engage my head. And my mind would be racing, and I would want to get on stage and you know, kind of coast off of the images and the ideas and the, and the dialogue that I had just seen. So... Um, uh, it was about, you know, it, it got to a really pretty good ratio where maybe one or two movies a night and then go find stage time, you know. But I ended up doing a lot of sets. I mean, I you know, I, I would do about 150, almost 200 sets a year somewhere. That's a pretty intense lifestyle. I mean, it was very – you was, were working a TV – a demanding TV job. Getting up in the morning, writing on a TV show, seeing movies at night, doing stand-up. It was very, very little sleep, but luckily I did all this in my 20s when I didn't require the amount of sleep that I seem to need now. You know, now I'm, I'm like, yeah, I can't I, – I need my 9 to 10 hours. I, I don't need to – I can't watch two movies and then go do a set. It's just, that just can't happen, at least not for a while. I can't even watch a movie. It's really hard. <laughs> it is hard because, you know, and having a – being a parent makes it very, very hard to concentrate on big chunks of material. You know, I, I'm – I'm kind of rehabilitating myself by – I'm not really – I mean, except for you know TV, which is so good. But those are hour-long shows. But I'm also just – I've gone back to reading a lot. Reading tends, is, seems to be rehabilitating my, my short attention span, which is nice. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. He's the author of a new memoir called Silver Screen Fiend, learning about life from an addiction to film. One of the weird things about this period of your life in the mid-90s is that you were, at the same time you were participating in, you know, one of the more vibrant stand-up scenes that oh, uh, yeah. has existed, this alternative L.A. mid to late 90s scene. Oh, yeah. Um, you were also uh, going to see all of these both cult movies and art movies, and you were also writing on Mad TV, a show which was this really weird combination of a lot of talented people worked on Mad TV. Right. The show, um, forgive me for saying it, kind of stunk. Oh, yeah. Well, and it was yeah. sort of, and it was sort of this thing where they 
from what I've been told by people that worked on the show, it was literally a studio audience of like 15 and 16-year-olds. Or, uh, yeah, or tourists they would bus in or uh, Marines or at-risk teens. It was just – and they would they would totally – it was this thing. I, I remember a quote one time somebody said about SNL where a lot of times on SNL, the very last thing you get to think about is – the comedy show. You there's the guest. There's the musical guest. Then there's the uh, whatever's whatever pop meme is happening in the news that week. And so you have to address all that stuff. And then maybe maybe there's space for one actual original sketch. And at Mad TV, it was all of the you know struggling with ratings and oh we have this guest we got to write around them we've got to appeal to the audience that's here which for the mo- most part were kind of dumb people. Um, they brought in the worst audiences. It, it was weird how I was at Mad TV and then other friends of mine were over at Mr. Show at the same time. And the parallels were so stark where Mr. Show was – it was an audience of all their friends and people that got it. You know, It wasn't just people shipped in from nowhere and it was just stuff that they weren't serving any other purpose except putting on the absolute funniest stuff that they could. And then um, you know, Mad TV, we were trying to – and we had like we had writers like Gary Campbell and Brian Hart, Blaine Capatch wrote there, and and uh, Mike Short and uh, Lauren Dombrowski, like all these really really Key and Peel came out of there, and like all these really funny people, and you're just you're just there's a boot on your neck, man. And I remember one time we were talking like every now and then a really brilliant, a genuinely brilliant sketch would get through. At Mad TV, either because they're so busy, they just and, and something really clever would get through, and and I was like the ratio because every now and then on Mr. Show something really hacky and awful would get through because again they're also busy and struggling, but it was the opposite ratio where, hey, how was how did that get on Mr. Show? Yuck! And then how how did that get on Mad TV? Wow, you know so. And I imagine that in contrast to the uh, your pals that worked on Mr. Show. Uh, you were in the position where if you happen, if someone, one of your cohort happened to get something really cool through on Mad TV, mm-hmm. which there totally was really good stuff yeah, on yeah, Mad yeah. TV, um, you would just have to like explain to everyone that you knew, hey, we got something really cool through this right. week on Mad TV. Usually it was because it, they didn't see it. And well, it yeah. wasn't like the internet existed and you could no, do no. something it was really like, brilliant. Hey, you should have checked that. I'm just saying. You know, and and luckily, we Brian Hart became the head writer. You know, and he he's a kids in the hall guy, so you know he was able to. You know, Gary Campbell just wrote nothing but bulletproof stuff, and and so Brian would help shepherd that through that stuff through, which was always great. I imagine that watching the movies though was part of you protecting that part of your kind of nascent identity that was like hey yeah. like i'm smart and artistic <laughs> well i remember we 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 pitched i pitched a thing there and by the way you know everything i'm saying about mad tv was also compounded by the fact that when i was there i was jealous of all my friends that were over at mr show and i'm at mad tv um i was frustrated at, by the the you know the obstacles in my way uh and 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 i dealt with it by you know throwing tantrums and and, and being half-assed on my sketches and not really, you know, trying too hard because I was like, well, they're going to f*** it up anyway. It was just all poses. It was really bad. <laughs> I remember one time, here's here's the kind of stuff we had to deal with there. Gary Campbell wrote a sketch one time, and 
it was uh, – and by the way, what, there, this, there was an amazing writing staff, and they would always have a, what was called um, either a diversity hire or a, like a young writer thing. And instead of getting somebody that was funny, they would either put a friend of the cast in or someone whose family wanted a favor or something, and it was always someone that could care less about writing sketches. They just wanted a WGA card and like, I don't care, you know. So that's the guy. That was our that was our trainee writer sitting there, um, and and it, it almost got comical where they would, people would pitch sketches and he would raise questions about them that were that were based on his stupidity. But then the network people would go. Well, if this dumb guy's having a problem, maybe we need to address it. Like, because that's what we wanted to appeal to. So, uh, Gary Campbell wrote this sketch, and it's a guy eulogizing a friend at a funeral. And during the eulogy, it becomes clear that the guy who died died owing him fifteen dollars, and he's really <laughs> bitter about it. And he's doing this passive aggressive, like, just na- you know, for fifteen dollars. And then, so we read the sketch; and it was really funny. And then, uh, of course. This guy's hand goes up, the trainee writer. We're like, yeah. He goes, I mean, $15. Who cares? Why would he care? He <laughs> should have died like owing him 50000 Because then, you know, now he's got a right to be angry. And you just see all the writers. I, like, you literally, not only does, it's not, a, it's not that the guy doesn't get the sketch. He doesn't, literally doesn't understand how comedy works. Do you know what I mean? It'd be like me in, in, a, in a car mechanic's garage uh, and they're like, well, wow, this guy, this boy, these tires are really worn out. And I'm like, why don't we put wings and a propeller on the car and it'll fly and the tires will never wear out? Have you guys ever thought of that? You know, and they're like, you literally don't know how cars work. And but luck, unfortunately, all the network guys were like, hey, he's got a point. And then we had to art. We spent an hour having to re-explain how. And then the 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 uh, the sketch got cut, never got done because the dummy. Uh, excuse me, but the uh, I believe fifteen dollars is not that you know it's the, the guy. So you know that's what we had to deal with all. And I don't think I don't think there was anyone on Mr. Show that was raising those questions about sketches. What were you writing about in this time when the amount of your life that was spent outside of little rooms, either movie theaters, comedy stages, yeah. <clears throat> or uh, the writer's room at Mad TV or your office at Mad TV? Well, you can hear, I mean, you've listened to my first album. Uh, it, my first album is a um, testament to, you know, a young 20-year-old who's very insecure and, and all the bits are about this is stupid and this is dumb and I don't like this and here's how this, but it's all pop culture stuff that doesn't make any sense. It's very, very impersonal um, because I didn't have the vulnerability or the confidence yet to talk about what's wrong with me. So, you know, that that first album, Feeling Kind of Patton, is it's like me wringing my 20s out of the sponge of my head once and for all. And and then by the time I get to the second album, it's a little more about – I mean, there's still some of that KFC stupid food. But then there's a little bit more about me. And then by now it's – you know, again, you can always tell an older comedian because they're very confident with talking about, let me tell you what an idiot I am. You know, rather than let me tell you what's stupid and show you how smart I am. And show you how many references I can drop. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Patton Oswalt after a break. He'll talk about letting go of his obsession with art to focus on becoming a better person. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from IHT Records and Cobalt Music with David Gray's new collection of hits, The Best of David Gray. This new collection of David's works includes two new songs, Smoke Without Fire and Enter Lightly, and selections from the albums White Ladder, Life in Slow Motion, A New Day, New Years. The Best of David Gray, deluxe CD and vinyl LP, available now on Amazon. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comedian and actor Patton Oswalt. His memoir, Silver Screen Fiend, Learning About Life from an Addiction to Film, is available now. His comedy special, Talking for Clapping, just won an Emmy. So let's talk about your book, Patton. Mm-hmm. I think in some ways it is the story of someone learning about the limitations of a geek identity. Yeah. Well, yeah, it, it, what, what, it, what it's learning is that uh, as much as you might want to, uh, replacing life with art, whether it's art you make or art you pursue, uh, makes you less of a person and can end up causing a lot of stress and depression and um, can sort of cause your personality to flicker a little bit. What did you want from going to see two movies a night? I wanted to do the same thing that I did uh, listening to every comedy album I could get my hands on when I started and going to shows every night and watching. I wanted to absorb the grammar of film and absorb the the craft of it just by watching it. That's what I thought would happen. Um, but, you know, what, what happened was I simply became the absor- the absorbing and the checking off became the, the end, not the learning about anything. It feels to me like part of what is going on with people who are super, super into uh, a touristic uh, genre movies right. is you get – when you start pumping enough cinema into you, mm-hmm. sure, you can still get something out of a really spectacularly good movie. Mm-hmm. But you might get almost as much out of a movie that isn't particularly good overall, but has some thing in it that is, like, intense and amazing enough. One insane shot, one moment, one performance. I remember talking to Edgar Wright, and he said one of his favorite things about watching really cheap exploitation movies is you can always tell what the first day of shooting was. Uh, because that's where the young filmmaker that the producers have hired is showing off. And so there's always one in these awful movies, like you're talking about, there's a Chuck Norris movie called Blind Fury. Um, no, Silent Rage. It's called Silent Rage. And it's Chuck Norris basically meets Michael Myers from Halloween. He's just fighting this indestructible guy. But the opening shot is this incredible, incredible one take Robert Altman style up and down stairs, backyard, front yard, all. It's just amazing. And, and you can, and then the rest from that point on is just as he puts it bog standard one camera setup people come on because what you know happens is they the producers come in the money guys go so how much have you shot he goes i got this first page beautiful you're supposed to shoot 10 pages a day do it or you're fired so you know then they okay and then art goes out the window because they got to finish this movie Uh, very famously um there's a leonard castle film called the honeymoon killers leonard castle it's the only movie he ever directed because he was brought in to replace uh, Martin Scorsese, that was his first ever assignment, and he's wasted all these days doing these amazing master shots, and the producers were like, get out of here. We don't want, you know, just get this thing done. So, you know, there's always that 
little those little moments where you're like, oh wow, that shot was incredible in the middle of this terrible movie. <laughs> were there performers or writers that you were watching when you were um, in this state where you were indoors 18 to 20, 23 hours a day <laughs> um, uh, that made you think rather than think, oh, that's, that's, a, that's a move I can crib or mm-hmm. that's a thing I should remember so I can bring it back later, made you think, oh, wait, I need to work on me. Yeah, well, I mean, we all went kind of through the same phases of very early on, very abstract, um, you know, pointing out what's silly about the world. And then we, as we got older and got more comfortable, you know, we all went through, it, it was it was more, it wasn't so much of what, I mean, I remember Louis C.K. was a big revelation for me in the early aughts, seeing where he was going, talking about his family and his kids and himself, you know, I didn't think in those terms. Maria, Maria Bamford, too, just really laying it open out there like that. Um, but I, I kind of had to find that by myself for the most part because we were all maturing kind of at the same rate, and it took us a while. You know, I didn't have that many examples to go off of because I wasn't an example of that. And even if that was happening, for the most part, I wasn't drawn to that. I was drawn to wanting to look smart and on top of it because I was so insecure. It seems to me like one of the great parts about doing comedy, um, and, you know, I've never done stand-up, but I've done plenty of other kinds of comedy on stage. Yeah. And one of the great things is you get a, you know, it is a way to relate to other people in which you feel like you have control. Mm-hmm. And being a grown-up, getting married and having kids especially, mm-hmm. is demands that you not have control you are when you get married you are ce- you are ceding control of your life and time to a partnership yeah and when you have true. kids you are you know you are ceding it to someone who is more important than you you're not you're not the first priority being a comedian's about me 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 being in show business is me first and uh when you are married, you are now part of a team. You're, you'd better be part of a team. You're not going to be a successful marriage. And then if you are a, a parent, you're, not only are you part of a team, you're a servant. You two are both, are both, you are team servants. So that's hard for a lot of people. Certainly hard for me. I mean, I don't really go out and do sets like I used to. I can't really, um, I can't stay up late the way that I used to. I was just in Vegas these past three days doing some work, and it would, it would get to be like 10 o'clock. I'm like, I, I need to go to bed. I'm tired. You know, I'm just used to getting up in the morning now. It's a different world for me. I, I find that even above and beyond the physical and time parts of it, that it, it, that it was a really great struggle for me to, um, you know, I mean, I've, I've been with my wife since we were in high school. I mean, we, wow. <laughs> wow. you know, and, and so like, we, and we have a great relationship, no, no trouble, yeah. but it was still terrifying to me to give up the emotional control of my life to the extent yeah. that I had to do to, to really be a real partner to my wife. And mm-hmm. this similarly with my children. Yeah. Oh no! I mean, you have to give up. You have to give up some brain real estate, and that's really scary for people. Because remember, it's like my comedy, my comedy, my films, my art, my art. That's what I think about, and I don't think about. I don't get to think about it twenty four hours a day. 
got to think about her and, okay, what are we doing this weekend? And I want to check the mommy blog, see what activities are happening. And should we get, you know, my, my first thought is usually not for me anymore. It's for her. It's funny because one of the defining characteristics of being a geek, I think, is investing more emotional energy than is strictly necessary yeah. into something that that sort of doesn't matter. I mean, I know yeah. that I was a huge I was a huge baseball geek and, you know, one of the things about sports is they just totally don't matter. Like they right. yeah, really yeah, yeah. don't matter. Yeah. And um and I I like to watch baseball games still, but it is such a different experience for yeah. me now. I still like watching movies, but it's a much different experience. I don't have that I haven't seen that whatever the third Hobbit movie is. I'll eventually see it, but but my it used to be like, gotta see it the day it comes out. Like I got, and now I'm like, I'll see it. They're not going any. You know, my daughter being five is a, that's a finite resource. A movie that ain't that's not going anywhere. And if I get to my deathbed and go, oh, I didn't see every oh, fine, but I did see every episode of my daughter. You know, and that kind of matters. Well, Pat, and I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really <laughs> good a, to have you back on the show. What a weird way to end this. Well, thanks for having me, man. Patton Oswalt's uh, book is called Silver Screen Fiend, Learning About Life from an Addiction to Film. He's also a wonderful actor on uh, a couple of television shows and one of the best, absolutely still one of the best oh. stand-up comics in the world. So. Thank you, Jesse. Of course, of course Pat. Thanks, Thank man. you very much. Yeah. Patton Oswalt, recorded last year. His most recent special is Talking for Clapping. You can find it on Netflix. He'll also be featured in the new Mystery Science Theater 3000, which you'll be able to watch on Netflix sometime next year. By the way, you might have already heard this, but Patton's wife passed away unexpectedly about six months ago, and he's been busy taking care of his daughter lately, and he's just getting back to the stage now. Patton has always been a really great friend of this show. He's gone out of his way to help me in the show many times, even way back when I was in college, now almost 15 years ago. And uh, his work has also been a really great inspiration to me. So I just want to say thanks for your help, Patton, and, um, you know, we're thinking of you. It's Bullseye. We'll get to my interview with the folks behind Fresh Off the Boat in a minute, but first, have you heard of Pop Rocket? It's our sister show. Pop Rocket is a roundtable discussion of everything great in popular culture. It's hosted by the wonderful comedian Guy Branham. Hey, Guy, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Oh, hey, Jesse. This week, uh, in honor of Halloween, uh, Margaret Wappler is going to be leading a conversation about uh, hoaxes in popular culture. Uh, we're going to talk about everything from War of the Worlds to whether or not Kim Kardashian actually got held up at gunpoint in Paris. Plus our jams and what we're all about this week. Oh, I hope there's Fiji Mermaid talk. Pop Rocket. Find it on iTunes or in your favorite podcasting app. My next guests on Bullseye are Nanachka Khan and Randall Park. They both work on the ABC sitcom Fresh Off the Boat, which is now in its third season. I talked with them last year. Fresh Off the Boat is based on the memoirs of Chef Eddie Huang. It tells the story of a Taiwanese family adjusting to life in Orlando, Florida. They open up a cowboy-themed restaurant. Nanachka is the show's creator. She previously worked on American Dad, Don't Trust the Bee in Apartment 23, and Malcolm in the Middle. Randall Park stars on the show as Louis Wong, the family's patriarch. In this scene, 
Park and his wife, who's played by Constance Wu, are at a wedding back home in Taiwan. And Park's character is starting to wonder, should they move back? Is it worth it staying in Orlando? You know what I miss? Bagels. I want a bagel. I didn't even think I liked bagels, but I want a bagel. <laughs> well, I still think we'd be able to afford a better life in Taiwan. Through shortcuts and connections, yes. But you have worked hard for everything you have. You've earned it. No one's given you anything. We did it, Louis. We moved to America and we made it. We are the success story. I guess we are. I mean, we did fly Economy Plus. Besides, no one loves America more than you. As soon as we move back here, you would miss it over there. And as soon as we go back there, you know you're going to miss it here. Well, maybe we'll never feel completely at home in either place. Oh, my God. We are Ghost. We are Patrick Swayze and Ghost. Stuck between two worlds, part of both belonging to neither. It's the best movie ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Randall Park. Welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you guys on the show. Thank you for having Thank us. Thank you. It's so great to be here. Randall, I want to ask you a little bit about your background because mm-hmm. uh, I don't think I realize that you are from Los Angeles. Born and raised, yeah. Yeah. Um, and you are of an age where uh, you're Korean-American mm-hmm. where – in L.A., to be Korean-American, in especially around the time of the riots in the early 1990s, mm-hmm. which was a time when you were like... In in, high, I was in high school. Yeah, yeah, you were like in the most identity-forming <laughs> part of your life. Yeah. To be Korean-American was a big deal. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you think your experience was shaped by that time that you grew up in? Well, I went to Hamilton High School. It's uh, uh, in in West LA, um, and it was uh, at the time extremely diverse. So the, the friends I had growing up were of all different races. My girlfriend in 1992 was African American, and this was during the riots, you know. And I remember race was something. I mean. People were very conscious of it, and and people, at least in my high school, they were very into uh, hip hop music and, and rap music. I, I loved Ice Cube, I loved N.W.A. and 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 I remember during the riots, uh, Ice Cube had come out with Death Certificate, which is like a great album. But there was a song on it called Black Korea, where he really kind of just eviscerates like the. Uh, Korean merchants, you know, in, in black neighborhoods and, and, and Korean people. And I remember just feeling so just hurt by that because I worshipped Ice Cube. And a lot of stuff like that, you know, where I, I, I'd question like, gosh, you know, my own identity, my own place in, in, in kind of this really kind of multicultural landscape. But at the same time, it was... A lot of fun, you know, growing up in L.A. Nanashi Khan, you're Persian-American. Mm-hmm. Um, how far are you from the immigrant experience in your family? Uh, well, both my parents were born in Iran, and they came over separately. Um, and my brother and I were born here in Las Vegas, which is, like, super American, I feel like. like that's, like, <laughs> times eight. And, yeah, but, you know, my grandmother lived with us. My grandfather lived with us. So I had multi-generation in my house. So it was definitely very much a part of, you know, growing up. Like, 
I think I'm not sure, but in my household, like your friends are your cousins until you go to school. Mm-hmm. Like you don't have other friends outside your family. You just play with, you know, your aunts and uncles come over and you play with your cousins and that's your community for a long time until you to sort of go out into the American school system and start to sort of uncover. And that's the first glimpse you get that your family may be different from other families. You know, you don't quite understand that because it's all you know. And then you go out and you're like, oh, okay, like these other kids are eating Lunchables or these other kids are, you know, wearing Keds or whatever it is. Um, And then you sort of absorb that and then you bring that back into your house. You're almost like a scout going out into the world (laughs) and reporting back in to your family as to like what's happening. Did you want to be Persian as a teenager, as a kid? No, no. It's like the thing that makes you different, that you embrace as an adult, is the exact thing that you don't want to define you when you're a teenager or when you're, you know, even younger. You just want to be like everybody else. You just want to fit in. And then as you grow up, you see that those things, and that's the stuff that you write about as a writer. You know, you write about those differences and you write about, you know, having your friends come over and your parents singing happy birthday in Farsi. And you just, at the time, you're mortified, you know? And, but now to me, like my brother and I, when we call each other, we laugh about those things. And we're like, do you remember how upset you were and you just wanted hot dogs and, you know, like you just wanted to be no quote unquote normal. But that's the stuff that shapes you. And that's the stories that you always come back to as an adult. And, you know, when you start to embrace those differences. One of my favorite books is this book that was written by the people who made this hip hop magazine called Ego Trip. That was called the Ego Trip Big Book of Racism. (laughs) And a great book. I highly recommend it to everyone. And uh, one of the wonderful lists in this book is great Mexican-American film characters as portrayed by Puerto Rican actors. (laughs) Um, and it's a long list. Oh my God, amazing! <laughs> it's a wonderful list. Um, I mean, it's like to be fair, it's like half Luis Guzman, but, like, <laughs> but Luis Guzman's always great. Um, uh, but I, I, I wonder, Randall, um, how you feel about working in Hollywood as an Asian American mm-hmm. uh, versus working in Hollywood as a Korean American. Um, well, I, I am kind of the Asian Louis Guzman. Uh, and, <laughs> uh, no. That's an incredible credit. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it, 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 I identify as both. I've always identified as both in my adult life. And, and, and uh, it's not something that really was an issue until this show, you know. Uh, when this show happened, I really kind of realized how important the show was to like the community you know and um and and i i wondered about my place in it especially as a korean american actor playing a taiwanese immigrant and i felt like gosh this is the only one this is the, there's no other show like <laughs> doing this for the there was so much weight put on it so i i mean i i i talked to eddie about it, um, I told him like I, I I didn't I didn't feel right. I didn't feel like I should be playing this part. And 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 Eddie told me that he thought I should, you know, and that meant a lot to me. So uh, you know, after I kind of thought it through, I felt like okay, you know what, I have this job, this responsibility, and I'm just gonna do it. Did you have to do like the whatever the Taiwanese American analog is to uh, police officer ride along? 
I guess. Do you like say to Eddie Huang, like, hey, can we hang out and just <laughs> do Taiwanese American stuff. stuff for a while? Just and so he, I can get some authentic flavor. He's like, you're doing it right now. You're hanging out with me. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, to a degree, I definitely like uh, talked to a lot of people, started taking Mandarin classes and, and, and started kind of trying to and, and also just really, I, you know, we met the actual parents that we portray. You know, we went out to Orlando and met them. I just as many things as possible to kind of get me feeling more comfortable, you know, in the skin of this character. Ninashka, as a Persian-American, how would you feel if the first ever Persian-American sitcom was on television and the star was an Arab guy or a Pakistani guy or something where for white people it's close enough, but it's a different thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, I would, it depends on the character. You know, it depends on, on the role. It depends on the actor. But, I would just try to get it as close to the experience as possible, you know. And if the actor is amazing, like Randall is, I would be like, okay, you know, and you would guide them towards, like, here's a little tweak to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You're in the right arena, but maybe like this or maybe like that, you know. And I would know because your ear growing up to the language that you're surrounded with is so specific. So I think that, like, those little tweaks would help basically like my family, you know, and then they would be like, oh, he sounds Persian. He sounds like he's Persian. And there's still a lot of people in the community who are just happy that these actors aren't white people with their eyes taped back, you know, like, <laughs> or in brown face or, you know, right, right. I, there's still that consciousness that there was a time when that was like the norm, you know. Mm-hmm. I imagine that part of the collaborative process on this show is having a voice that says, here are specifics that are great and funny about whether it's uh, Eddie Huang's personal experience or just being Taiwanese-American or being Chinese-American or being Asian-American, and also voices that say, um, I am not those things, but I get that joke. (laughs) Right. Absolutely. And, you know, the immigrant experience, the hip-hop fan experience – because also within the series, Eddie, the character, Hudson Yang, is a black sheep within his own family even. So that idea of feeling like an, like not understood even amongst your own people is another layer that um, there's so many people can relate to. And I think that that's what we embrace about the show is like all the different access points, you know. I'll finish my conversation with Nanachka Khan and Randall Park from Fresh Off the Boat after a break. We'll talk about writing from different perspectives and we'll finally achieve the great dream that I always had, the real reason that I created this public radio show. We will brainstorm ideas for a Crocodile Dundee reboot. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey, before we get back to the show, the NPR Politics Podcast is counting down to Election Day with new episodes every day. Skip the cable news hangover and stay caught up with them. They'll have new podcast episodes every afternoon so you'll know what happened and what it means by the time you get home or to class or by the time you're finished walking the dog. Whatever your routine, make the NPR Politics Podcast a part of it every day now through November 9th because we're all going to wake up and wonder, hey, wait, what just happened? Subscribe or listen on the NPR One app. Okay, back to the show. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking to Randall Park and Anachka Khan, 
the star and showrunner, respectively, of the new ABC show, Fresh Off the Boat. I want to play a scene from the third or fourth episode of the show uh, that I thought was really interesting. So uh, basically, Eddie, the kid who's at the center of all this, brings a VHS tape of a sexual harassment (laughs) seminar to school as a dirty video, and everybody gets a copy of it. And there's a big meeting with the principal and so on and so forth. And the end result of all of this is that the principal schedules uh, birds and the bees training for school and asks everyone to have a birds and the bees training at home with parents and kids. And uh, Randall Park, your character, sits Eddie down to have a father-son talk. Um, And uh, so, so let's take a listen to that. What I mean is Taiwan was so conservative. You couldn't really have sex before you were married. You didn't know if you and your wife were compatible that way. It was dumb luck that your mom and I were. Yo! Sorry. Look, I don't want you to go out and have sex tomorrow, okay? But this, this is just going to confuse you. I will tell you the truth if you want to hear it. Yeah? Okay. Hmm, okay, where to start? This will sound crazy, but it's way better than video games. You know how sneezes feel really satisfying in a weird way? Stay away from Arkansas. They outlawed all the fun stuff. Spring break, my God. (laughs) I am so excited for you. I might come with. That's a great question. I say maybe you burn about 200 calories. If you pretend like you have a bad back, you don't have to do so much work. Three words. Old National Geographic. I like having the lights out so I could pretend like we're in a castle. These are not the type of crabs Maryland is known for. And most importantly, like we always say during the SNL monologue, when a musician hosts, wrap it up. (laughs) Obviously, there's a bit of montage there. (laughs) Um, I think that at the heart of many, many, many family sitcoms is Dumb Dad. Um, which I think in, is understandable in some ways because we live in a, to some extent, uh, sexist culture uh, and a patriarchal culture. Uh, dads in our families often have more power, and so it's funnier to take them down a notch than it is the other members of the family. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that having been said, I think in a show that's about a an ethnic group that's never been on television before, uh, if you just had done Dumb Dad, uh, it would have been pretty problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt when as I was watching that scene, like in some way that scene was a way to say um, we want this character to be something more specific than – broad strokes because it's a sort of uh it's a, just a very specific thing for response for the dad to have it's not just dumb dad and it's not just immigrant dad exactly mm-hmm. exactly i mean it's really satisfying because he has an opportunity to present the quote unquote the talk you know which has been done before in a way that you've maybe never experienced it and it also suggests his own backstory and his desire, like mm-hmm. we said, you know, you want your kids to have better lives. Maybe that includes sex lives, you know, and like to talk about stuff like that again on a sort of in a, a platform of a network family sitcom. 
to me, it's kind of, you know, like quietly revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And I'm very proud of it because, you know, it plays on on the surface level of like the jokes and, and it's a funny scene. It's a funny sequence. But it also, you know, if you care to sort of take a step back and, and look a little bit deeper, it's it's kind of a cool uh, thing that we did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, you know, I, going into the series, aside from just feeling like maybe I'm not the one for the part, I was also concerned about, oh, gosh, I don't want, I hope this character is not that classic American dumb dad because specifically, like you say, he's a, he's an immigrant character. This is, the, again, the first time in a long time that we even see anything like this. And uh, so it was important to me that he wasn't a buffoon, you know, because we've seen that immigrant buffoon over right. and over again. It was something that was, you know, like right away, thanks to, you know, these great writers and Notch, it's like you, you, you saw that this was more than that classic dumb sitcom dad that there was a there was so much going on about about the about the entire family that that really made makes them unique and, and specific and 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 i think aside from the the asian american stuff this i mean that's what makes this show special it's it's these characters are are are, are very very layered you know well there's an awareness level that's surprising you know yeah. to specifically that scene because Especially, you know, Lewis has been very focused on getting his business up and running and making it successful. So then when he has to go and talk to his son about sex, which he does not want to do, the awareness that he has about what he's saying and the specificity of thinking about what Eddie's life is going to be like is something that is really surprising for the character. And I think, to me, what's really satisfying about that little montage, you mm -hmm. know. And then oh. Jessica has her own response to that afterwards, which is also hopefully it's also like unique. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ninochka Khan, Randall Park, it's been so great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Jesse. So fun. Every week, we like to close the show with a recommendation from me, your host. It's the Outshot. A lot changed in a few years for Sly and the Family Stone. Originally, the band was Utopian. On their first record, Sly's brother and sister were there, but there was also this towering chick with an afro playing trumpet and white dudes on drums and sax. When they broke in 1968, it was with a single called Dance to the Music, which is one of the most thrilling chunks of joy that has ever been put on wax. Sly and the Family Stone were looking to create a brand new world. A year or two later, though, the utopian ideal was already starting to curdle. The band moved from the East Bay to Los Angeles. Sly bought a rock star house in the hills, and he started carrying a violin case full of drugs, literally a violin case full of drugs, and not psychedelics and pot either, like Coke and PCP. It was always within arm's reach. In fact, you weren't even allowed to bring your own stuff to Sly's house. You had to get it from Sly. He'd line people up in his study for a snort out of a little gold spoon. In 1969, 
Larry Graham's bass anchored a single that seemed to ride the line between hopeful and depressed. Thank You for Letting Me Be Myself came out just after everything started to turn south. The chorus is almost hopeful, but the verse describes a street fight. Thank you for the party, says Sly, but I could never stay. You can feel the isolation building. Just as the band and its creator turned inward into blow and angel dust, they made a masterpiece. It was going to be called Africa Talks to You. Drummer Greg Arico had quit. Larry Graham was close to doing the same. Sly holed up in the record plant in Sausalito with a drum machine and some friends, Bobby Womack, Billy Preston, Ike Turner, a bunch of girls. And he made explicit the implicit darkness of his last hit. The album ended up being called There's a Riot Going On. It was called that, of course, because there were riots going on. The lead single was The Family Stone's last huge hit, one of the loneliest songs about family that you'll ever hear sung, with an intro from Sly's sister. They just love to learn and another child grows up to be somebody you just love to burn. Mom loves the both of them. You see it's in the blood. Both kids are good and mom. Blood's thicker than the mud. It's a family affair. Riot isn't quite an angry album. It's an insular album. It's the place you go when you've lost faith in the rest of the world. So many of the songs are about retreating into oneself, retreating into chemicals. One of the few bright tunes on the album is about nodding out. As soul turned into funk and the 1970s progressed, social protest in songs went from novel 
to cliche. The man, capital T, capital M, went from being kind of a useful idea to being sort of a joke. But unlike a lot of those records, Riot isn't about railing at the outside world. It's more about settling within yourself. By the 70s, Sly was a paranoid disaster area, missing concerts, always high. But there was still this note of hope in his music. This was the hope, that inside of us, somewhere, was peace. We were brave enough not to run away from it. Five years after Riot, Sly's career was pretty much over. Ten years afterwards, he had more or less disappeared. But he did make a perfect album before he got out of Dodge. That's my own shot. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye, the show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producers, Kevin Ferguson, Christian Duenas, helping out this week. Production fellow at MaximumFun.org is Kara Hart. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they are all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And if you want to hear about cool culture stuff between now and the next time Bullseye airs, you can find us on Facebook and click like. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.